Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by Helga Nowani. She's the Professor Emera of Science and Technology Studies um, at ETH Zurich and former president of the European Research Council. She has received numerous awards, such as the rarely awarded Golden Medal of the Academia, and is the recipient of many honorary doctorates, among them from the University of Oxford and the Wiseman Institute of Science in Israel. She has published widely in Science and Technology Studies, STS, and on Social Time. Her latest publication in AI We Trust, Power, Illusion, and Control of Predictive Algorithms has been published just this past September, 2021. Other publications of note are The Cunning of Uncertainty and An Orderly Mess. And I'd love to welcome Helga to the deep dive. How are you? Thank you very much. I am very curious to take the deep dive with you. <laughs> we are in the perfect place to do this. And, you know, most recently I, I read in AI We Trust, I read The Cunning of Uncertainty. I'm going to probably spend, like I mentioned, more time on the AI We Trust, but I actually found that there were many themes and, and points of interest that intersect between the two books, obviously, and, and your work in general. Obviously, AI is, is all about the predictive nature of things, not exclusively, but very much so. And anytime we're talking about uncertainty, the flip side of that is the predictive nature of our lives. To what degree can we make sense of an uncertain world and complex systems? So having said all that, I thought the choosing of the title of the book in AI We Trust is is a pretty apt way to start because I'm I'm wondering to what degree do we trust these systems and if we don't why why don't we? Well, actually, it's also a little um, bit cheek of the tongue because it is reminiscent of in God we trust, but in AI we trust because I chose it because on the one hand we do trust AI in a way that should sometimes make us stop and, you know, say, what am I doing here? Because we trust blindly. And on the other hand, it raises the question, when can we trust it? What is behind it? And also, uh, what is our the, the basis for trusting? Because trust is a relationship we establish usually with other human beings or with institutions. And trust is something very precious also because it can easily get lost and then it's very difficult to recuperate it. So the theme of trusting into AI, trusting a technology, all the more such an encompassing pervasive technology as digital devices and digitalization is, you know, reflects back on our attitude towards technology towards believing what the technology tells us. And here we come to predictive algorithm. It tells us something about our future. And do we believe it? Do we trust it? Should we trust it? And to what extent can it actually tell us what about the future? And I was curious, and I write down like a lot of questions. So there's like a lot of questions, a lot of notes. So when I'm when I'm looking down, I'm tracking our, our way through this conversation. And when I highlighted trust, I, I kind of tied it to ignorance in a way. Mm -hmm. So, and my question is, are we putting together kind of those deep societal bonds that you talked about with trust with a, a more prevailing sense of ignorance in the sense that people just don't know how this stuff works in the same way that I don't know how a plane works, but I trust that when I get on a plane, you know, knock on wood, I'm going to get where I'm going. I don't know how to like mechanically, I'm terrible mechanically with everything, but like, you know, if you, if you flip open the hood of a car, I couldn't tell you one 
piece of a car engine from another, but I know how to drive, right? Like I know how to turn the little thing, hear the car noise and move it from point A to point B. So the ignorance isn't meant in a bad way. It's that there's lots of things I use and do that I don't understand, but I use them on a very basic level. Is, is there some comparative to the way AI is in our lives in the same manner? Well, I think in, in general, it's it's true what you say about our life in a highly technologically advanced uh, society. It's not just you, it's all of us, you know, very few of us, unless you're really an expert, a specialist, you don't know how things actually work. We are surrounded and we got used to living with black boxes. And we rely on technology. They should function. We know when they break down, uh, whom to call or whom to ask for help. But in general, this is how we live in this complex technological world. And therefore, it is very important to accept what we don't know. But then there are certain moments when you do want to know. And this is typically when things break down, you want to know why did it break down. But also with AI, which is a very complex technology that, you know, it needs an infrastructure, it needs people to design an algorithm, it needs providers, it needs electricity, you know, uh, everything comes together here. And if we want to, to trust it, the question is, whom do we trust? What do we trust? You know, is it the device? Is it what the device tells us? Is it the people behind the device? If you think of large corporations who typically, you know, are the owners and the investors into this kind of technology. So all these questions come together. And, you know, many of those actors that you named, large corporations, sovereign nation states, you know, they're, they're very intrinsically, I find myself unable to trust those, those types of organizations, right? And I, I feel like that influences the lens to which through I look at a lot of this, this world, right? In the sense that the techno-optimism just doesn't really work with me right and i and i think it doesn't work with many people right so but i just published a piece on this i don't want us to default to cynicism mm -hmm. right which is a in a way it's another sort of predictive emotion because if we feel we can't change things we just accept things and then we accept this sort of inevitability so there's a lot in there but i, I want to give you a chance to kind of parse mm -hmm. through some of that, uh, I guess, those feelings yeah. that that are that are in underground, so to speak. Yeah, I, I think most people, if if you were to start an opinion poll, most people would agree with you. You know, we, we we know it. You know, people don't trust their governments, regardless where the government is. They don't trust corporations. They don't trust lawyers because there are too many of them, uh, etc. But at the same time, we act in a very ambivalent way. And we trust these corporations because we give them our data without much thinking about it because for matters of convenience. You know, we get something back. We can tap into one of the many apps if we want to know, you know, where's the next restaurant or we are being bombarded with advertisements that we we don't like them, but we still look at them. We are still influenced by them, even if we claim we are not. So we have this ambivalent attitude. Even if we don't trust them, we trust them in giving them our data without really thinking much about it because we get something in return. And um, this ambivalence is something that corporations know how to exploit very well. 
And we are sometimes, you know, fooled. And uh, then we raise uh, hell because we feel our privacy needs to be protected, etc. But at the same time, we do very little to protect our privacy or too little to protect our privacy because we, we just give them our data. So it is this very human mixture of ambivalence. We say one thing and we do another thing. And it's somehow characteristic also of the situation in which we find ourselves because not much of AI is, is regulated at the moment. And it's, as we see, it's very difficult to regulate it. In the U.S., you have the problem, you're much more against regulation than we are in Europe because people fear it will stifle innovation and you will uh, sort of do the wrong thing by regulating. In Europe, we are more likely to accept regulation, but then the question arises, we cannot just regulate in Europe, even if we try, because there is China, there is the US, there is the rest of the world, and it's a, it's a, it's a global technology. So regulation works to, to some extent in, in specific contexts, but practically you would need a regulation that is as globally uh, spread like the technology itself. So behind the questions you raise is really, you know, at what point will it become necessary to regulate better than, than what we do now? Because otherwise we are really on a slippery slope in giving too much of our data and you know, algorithms become very much sophisticated in knowing our, it's, it's not just facial discrimination and, and uh, you know, the biases we all know about. It's also, you know, getting data about how we feel, our mood, the way how, you know, we all use fitness uh, bands if we, if we jog or if we do other kinds of exercise, the famous 10,000 steps that people should do every day. Etc. So all this, you know, our, gives away things about ourselves that can be combined with other data to tell uh, very much about ourselves. And one phrase that I have often encountered in my discussions with with people who are also in in the business, but also users, is the phrase: "The AI knows me much better than I do myself." And this is a phrase that, you know, it's, I, I find it really shocking if, uh, if people yeah. really believe this, that there is something out there that knows me better than, than myself. Yeah. And, you know, not to use bad language, even though I'm a fan of bad language, um, <laughs> I've, I've similarly heard those kind of statements, you know, these you know, even if people don't say AI, they'll say like, oh, my phone knows me better than I know myself. The apps know me better than I know myself. Facebook, you know, insert whatever technological tool or app yeah. knows me better than I know myself. And I'm like, that's complete bullshit. Like, that's not true. <laughs> like, I don't know. I, I feel like I just because I'll just pick Facebook. I'm not on Facebook that much, but it's an easy example, right? You know, I'll search for something out the famous, I searched for boots, I went on Facebook, and now I'm seeing ads for boots, right? But I'm like, you don't, just because you reflect that back to me, you don't know me, right? Like, you don't know why I was doing that, right? Like, you, you have no understanding of the random nature of what could have led me to search for anything, right? Because there's an underlying purpose, or maybe no purpose at all, that the ad does not reflect back. And those are sort of the, the things that I want to dive into a little bit more because I think it brings us to this notion of time and time is a, mm -hmm. is a big part of, of your work. And, you know, a lot of websites will measure the efficacy of their site based on how long I spend there, right? So they'll say, oh, he spends a lot of time on this site, so we're really doing well. And they'll use this to then sell to marketers. Right. Like, look at how sticky our site is. Right. So there's all these notions of time. And I'm off. I often reflect on the moment when I do a search to the thought process that brought me to that search, to the reasons that brought me to that search have nothing to do with the time that a site is measuring mm -hmm. 
to which I'm using it, right? So I'm I'm saying all of that to say that there's there seems to me to be very big human disconnects mm-hmm. between what I feel and how that is being represented in the world that is increasingly digital. So how do we pull some of that yeah. together? Yeah. Well, first of all, I recognize a kindred spirit in subversion in you. <laughs> And you are perfectly right, uh, the way how you feel, but many people don't see it this way. And what happens actually is that Facebook or whoever is building up a fake identity of who you are. You know, it's not you, but it's somebody who looks at the boots and, you know, uh, buys whatever. And, And so they put together and a profile of you that has little to do with who you really are. But still, you know, this profile is being used, it's circulated, etc. So that's the, the danger that I see. But, but you are right that in, in terms of what is being measured, collected in, in terms of data and then to be processed, uh, processed is completely disconnected from our real life. Nevertheless, you know, we have this digital universe, I speak of the mirror world, that uh, is created through collecting all these data of having sensors, uh, etc. We built this mirror world. And the mirror world is another world than the real world in which we live. And we have also experienced now in the, during the pandemic, you know, the kind of um, social distancing and, and isolation, uh, the lack of physical contact in the real world, you know. And for many people, this also meant they lose the sense of time because time is, arises also, social time arises through the way how we interact. And it's, it's built, it's constructed through the way how we, how we interact, interact, and therefore we have this disconnect. I don't know whether this answers your question, but you know, it goes in, in that direction of saying we, we must be very careful and still keep our feet on, on the ground in the real world. We have a body, and the body does not want to be only in the digital universe. You know, We want to, to feel and touch and, and hug and, uh, you know, everything that makes us also physical beings in, in the physical world, and of course biological beings in the physical world, is, is different from the way how we behave in, in the digital universe. Absolutely. And, and I think the beauty of this is that I throw out a lot of things and then we just like kind of wade through it. So it does, it does absolutely answer. So I want to continue on this thread talking about time because that, that comes up so often in, in your work. And you talk about there being our biological time, our physical time as as human beings, and how that is intersecting with the larger geological Anthropocene time. There's a function of digital time, which exists outside of those spaces. And so I want to give you an opportunity to speak to why these intersecting timelines and frames that we use are so important when understanding this digital world that we live in. Yes, the the topic of time has preoccupied me for uh, for years and years. And in fact, I wrote a book on uh, time already in the 80s. And once you start to think about time and work on time, it's a topic that never lets you go. Because it's part of our existence, and since you mentioned biological time, biological time is inscribed in us. As we know, we move from birth to death. This is inevitable human fate. And therefore, we have to think about time having a multiplicity of times. Physical time is well understood by physicists, and they say there is, from a physical point of view, you cannot distinguish between past and future, while in biological time you obviously can. And in social time, every 
human being, every social group, every civilization and culture always has had different ways of coping between past, present and future. And let me give you just one example in Europe during the Middle Ages. You know, what did future mean in, in, a, in a sort of Christian-dominated environment? It meant uh, the future is you die and then either you come to hell, to heaven, or maybe to the limbo state, the purgatory. And that was it. And there was no other notion of the future. And this only came later during the uh, Enlightenment and with industrialization. And all of a sudden, people discovered that their experiences, their past experience, do not necessarily foretell their future. But the future is something open. They could have aspirations that differ from those of their parents because their life could be different from those of their parents. And then the future became open. This has a lot to do with science and technology, of course, that pushed, you know, towards an, an, an open horizon of, of the future. And for me, this is a very important human discovery, a human intervention, uh, because for the largest part of human history, people believed on various grounds that the future is already predetermined. You know, it's known by God or the gods. Fate has already, the, the, the dice has, has been cast and your life will follow the predetermined path. And for me, working on this notion of predictive algorithm, I see a risk that if we tend to believe that these predictive algorithms actually know the future, that we may fall back into a state where we think the future is already predetermined. And this is wrong. It's not the case. Our future is open. And therefore, one of the messages of, of my book is actually to say we have not to trust too much. And we have to remind ourselves continuously a predictive algorithm is based on data from the past, it extrapolates from the past, and we are creatures of habit, so much of what we do is based on what we have done yesterday, but never 100%. So whatever prediction is made about the future, it's couched in probabilities, and we should never forget that. And the future is not predetermined. And therefore, it's, it's a kind of warning also that I want to convey to the, the readers, because these predictive algorithms if we tend to invest agency into them, and by this I mean, you know, they are an agent that tells us something. Instead of seeing it's a, it's a sophisticated mathematical operation that takes data from our past, puts them together in, according to certain mathematical rules and outcomes, algorithm that is able to predict what we do in the future, but it's based on probabilities. It's never 100%. It's not predetermined. Because otherwise, they may turn into self-fulfilling prophecies. And self-fulfilling prophecies, this is a social phenomenon that is well known. If people believe that something will happen, then they may change their behavior so that it will actually happen. This is a self-fulfilling, self-referential prediction, self-fulfilling prophecy. And then it actually happens. I mean, the, the famous example from the past was the run on the bank. You know, some people in, in the 1930s, as, as it happened, you know, tried to keep, take their money out of the bank because they knew the stock market would crash. And then with everyone doing it, the bank became illiquid and crashed. So this is the kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. And so these are, this is one of the warning signs that I would like to plant <laughs> and say, you know, do not trust and, and remember, you know, it's not a, an autonomous agent that now tells you, that knows yourself and that can tell you what you would actually do. It can only tell you from what you did in the past, there is a certain likelihood that you will like this uh, restaurant, you will like to do this or, or that. You may get, uh, with a certain probability, certain diseases if you don't uh, uh, change your lifestyle, etc. But it's based on probabilities. And 
you know, there's a, a lot of ideas that kind of flowed through this idea of time, inevitability, and the connections that go toward making our future. And at least in the United States, and I'll, you know, I live in the United States, so I'll, I'll use, commonly I will use examples from the United States. And I'm I'm not going to quote, I'm not going to, I don't know exactly who the study is from, but it's a very famous study that in the United States, a, a country steeped in incredibly gross inequality, that your, your zip code is one of the most predictive things about your future outcome. And so when I'm confronted with the deterministic nature of technology to a certain extent, I'm also trying to reconcile that with already existing predeterminate factors like incredible inequality, you know, and where you're geographically born in the, in the United States could have an oversized impact on your, on your future life, yeah. um, you know, well-being and health and, and all of those things. So in a world that is becoming more technologically based, how do we not imprint those same inequalities into this technology to become even more of a loop? You know, because that's one of the things that I'm that I'm often confronted with is that some of the so I'll put a little pin there, but some of the the things that are happening in the world as it pertains to what I'll call existential crisis, right? The mm-hmm. notions of climate crisis, they are happening. They are reality, present realities for parts of the world as much as they are future, potential future outcomes for other parts of the world. Mm-hmm. So it seems like we are not all living in the same time at the same time, if that makes sense. <laughs> I, I would say, you know, it's the simultaneousness of uh, of different times because we live in different parts of the world, but at the same time, we are together on this planet. And since you mentioned uh, climate change, you know, it will impact, but in different ways, different parts of the planet. But in the end, uh, we all will be impacted upon. Of course, as we know, also their inequalities make it easier for those who can afford it to protect themselves. And uh, in the end, it's again those at the, at the bottom of the social hierarchy who are worst off and, 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 hit, uh, and hit most. But to, to go back to the beginning of your, of your question, I would say it's important to nurture a critical spirit and even a subversive spirit already in, in children and in youngsters. You know, don't believe because your zip code tells you where you live that this is your fate. This is like going back to the, to the Middle Ages before we discovered that the horizon is open. You know, where you lived or what, who your parents were. It determined the way how you had to dress, what you had to eat, the way how, whom you could marry. You know, all this was already predetermined because this was the social hierarchy. People at that point did not even think of it as inequality because this was the social order they accepted as given. Now, luckily, we have overcome this and we can fight inequalities. And I think this is another very important message that uh, we have to take note of because um, there is the real threat of the digital divide, that the fissures that exist in society, the inequalities will become even deeper because some people will be excluded from the digital world or from the more sophisticated parts of this digital world that allows you to make use also of the opportunities it, it, it offers. Not all bad, it, it offers a lot of opportunity. And if we don't take uh, the disadvantaged um, groups of society and individuals of society with us in this, we will have a terrible situation because existing inequalities will be deepened through the digital device. Now, technology and especially data you know, they don't fall from heaven, they come from society, and the way how they are collected, where they are collected, how they are categorized, you know, already the the categories, determine and take on much of the bias that exists already. 
and much of the inequalities that exist. So from this point of view, we have to be very, very cautious and conscientious to see what kind of data are we using, what is the source of the data, what is their quality, and try to get rid of the bias or at least recognize and combat the bias to the, to the extent that, that we can. And it's a never-ending fight because technology can do and, and must do certain things, but the rest is the way how society functions and how we live together. And we, if we accept these existing inequalities as given that we can do nothing about it, then things will not change. So this is where, you know, critical thinking and even, you know, the spirit of subversiveness enters. And I want to continue on a little bit of that theme that the future, as that horizon opened, became a place that was better, right? Like there, there was a notion that your your station in life, your the conveniences of the world were moving in a space that was better. Now, a lot of that better, quote unquote, was happened because of the inequalities that we that we talked about you know the the exploitation through slavery and colonialism built a better for the global north at the expense of the global south and i want to link that to what i see as threats to liberal democracies you you highlight that in the book where the notion of better in my opinion is now shrinking in the global north now causing a lot of the underlying threats that we see to our societies, whether that's misinformation, actual combat, more militarized state, what whatever the all the different things are. So having said that, you know, do we need to shift the way in which we think of better in a in a more macro context? Is the better of a industrial age capitalist state compatible with where we are in the world, given climate, given inequality, given everything else. Because if we're measuring better by those standards, it seems like we're creating more conflict. I don't know if that better was really better. <laughs> well, you always have to add better for whom. <laughs> And in my book, I give this example of, you know, the breadfruit as in the age of the Enlightenment, when it was important to make people public happiness, which is also in the U.S. Constitution. It, you know, it comes from the, from the same kind of, of thought. Public happiness meant in those days that you had something to eat, that you were well nourished because uh, hunger was so widespread and, and so on. And when in the colonies it was discovered uh, that breadfruit could still your hunger, you know, this became a sort of iconic uh, kind of food. But I also show how the ideas of the Enlightenment were limited to metropolitan France. And they, the colonies were there, the colonies were exploited. Breadfruit came typically from the colonies. They were shifted to other colonies in, in the Caribbean because then people working on the sugar plantations, you know, were better nourished and therefore they could work better and, and, and more and longer. So this is part of the story. But to come back to, to this idea of, of betterment, I mean, in a comparative perspective, certainly in the 21st century, we live better in terms of, you know, material comfort. We can go to a dentist and, and, and you know, things that we take for granted now that did not exist before. But the narrative of progress with this idea of betterment meant it will go on and on and betterment will eventually reach all. And this is uh, turned out to be an illusion because, you know, technology played a, a big role in this but it never became the tide that would lift all the boats. The idea was you start with technology and then social progress will follow. Yeah, We now, we all have washing machines at one point, which was a big relief for, for, for women in particular. It changed the life for the women to the better. But it does not mean that technological progress translates automatically into social progress. 
there's always this, this gap. And what we see now is many people don't believe into betterment anymore. You know, we have also empirical data that from, from the U.S., that uh, men living in the Appalachian region say they don't think that their sons at the same age as they are now will live better than they did 40 years ago or 50 years ago. Yeah, And this means the children will not have it better anymore. So this belief, and this is now hitting also the middle class in the North. It's no longer just uh, the Appalachian region in, in, in the American South. It's hitting the middle class be because it becomes obvious. We cannot sustain this idea of an infinite betterment and it will just continue in a linear fashion indefinitely. And then uh, people start to react in different ways. You have the technological nerds which you alluded already in the beginning, who think, well, technological fixes will, will be sufficient and uh, we just wait and we will have the technology, we will have do geoengineering for climate change or, I don't know, we will send, uh, put iron into the oceans and the oceans will circulate in certain ways and you know, all our problems will be solved, which is complete nonsense. Or you have those who tend to become afraid and there are many young people who are really preoccupied of environmental change and uh, fear of their future. They take it in a, in a very personal way, and it causes them a, a lot of distress. So we are in a critical situation where, on the one hand, technology certainly can help us, but it's never technology alone. And we also have to avoid that young people lose, you know, as a young person, you should have a certain optimistic outlook on life because otherwise you you withdraw, You're, you don't see the chances that are open to you in your further development as a young person. And they have to have this feeling, you know, it's it's possible to shape the future to a certain extent with all humbleness that uh, must be the starting point, of course. And, you know, that, that allows me to kind of continue because there was a, a section of an AI we trust that, I mean, I love the whole book, but there was the, the portion where specifically you mentioned the, the future needs wisdom. Yes. <laughs> and it really stuck out to me because I, maybe because most recently I've been wrestling with a lot of these ideas and on my own. And the word wisdom is, is one that, I think is very distinct from other words like innovation and technology and 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 what have you. And so the so seeing it in that context instantly resonated with me. And I, I wanted to give you an opportunity to highlight, you know, why you thought framing it in that way was important. And my my other note is how are we defining wisdom? So it's kind of a two-parter. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, you know, the origin was, as I, as I describe in the book, um, I came back from a conference and the organizer had decided to have breakout sessions. So as, as it often happens, and you have four groups and the group gets a color or a letter or a number. And in this case, we had an, a haiku that was done by an algorithm. It's very simple for the algorithm to do it, but the algorithm, I did not particularly think it's a very good haiku of my group. And on the way back, sitting in the plane, I said, I can do better. So I wrote the first haiku of my life. And the last line was, future needs wisdom. And the phrase stuck with me because I thought, you know, wherever it came from, it's uh, something of an unconsciousness that suddenly realizes um, and, and materializes in a phrase, future needs wisdom. And wisdom, thinking about it, of course, wisdom comes with a lot of experience of not pursuing anymore your own personal narrow interests. You know, you are generous to other people who seek your advice, etc., so in many civilizations, you had the old wise men and sometimes old wise women 
who had wisdom coming from the experience and generously, you know, offering it to those who were seeking uh, advice. Now, today, this will no longer work. We cannot rely on having these people or even listening to them. So wisdom for me should become a kind of ethos, not ethics, an ethos, an attitude, how we want to to live and make part uh, of our life open to incorporate this wisdom. And in the context of AI, it means, you know, be much more sensitive to the context in the social context in which you use it, from which it comes. And the social context means look around, be aware. What are people's aspirations? What are people's, also the good sides of living together? What do people want? And take this context into account. And then, of course, wisdom has to be translated in a specific context. Do I just follow a rule regardless of what it says? Do I have a metric that, uh, you know, I just um, tick a box and that's it? Or am I looking for more? And this is what the ethos is. It's, it's an attitude of consideration for others, for um, solidarity in places where we normally don't speak about solidarity and uh, trying to create an environment in which we will be better equipped to deal also with the downsides of digitalization. Because then we say, no, this is not uh, the intention. You may want to have a tick in the box, but this will not be enough because the, the ethical problem remains. And by ticking a box, we have not removed it. And this is what I mean by by wisdom being an ethos. But of course, you have also, you know, in an online discussion, I had somebody from, uh, I think it was Indonesia, said, you know, wisdom, we have so much wisdom in our own tradition and, and culture, and it's wonderful. Uh, and, and you make me think, how can we connect what our old own cultural tradition with its wisdom? brings how we deal with AI. And this is something that has to be explored. You know, I'm not uh, someone who can give a recipe. I can only say, you know, wherever you find in your own cultural background, you find wisdom, try to connect it to the problems we face with AI being becoming part of our life and part of our existence. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think that's what prompted the thought process, the question. And, you know, I want to I want to actually use the, the example you just gave of the, the person from Indonesia, because I, I feel often the prevailing knowledge that is where we're debating these ideas tends to fall on and within the cultural narratives of the West. Right. And prevailing capitalist notions, right? Like that's sort of like the underlying engine that runs all of this. You know, my thought process, not projecting that onto anybody else, but I really do feel the values and the underlying philosophies, they are part of what's powering these these narratives. So certain things become knowledge, you know, like we've we've all we've thrown around a lot of these terms just in the course of this conversation, right? The the age of enlightenment and all these kind of things, like, you know, mm-hmm. not debating those terms, but they they come with a certain from our frameworks, we nod and we go along and we say, like, yeah, that's true, right? And I think that person in Indonesia is probably like, I don't give a shit about France, right? Like I'm I've been like living here, right? And thinking about these things and having a different perspective. And I agree we have to pull those ethos together. But if I'm thinking about the weighting of these things, the the weight of them lands in one place because it's the academy, right? And other wisdoms that come from indigenous, that come from other parts of the world falls into, I won't say dismissed in hand, but it's sort of like, oh, that's folkloric. And that doesn't, you know, it's, you know, you get what I'm trying to say? Like we we got to find a way to pull those wisdoms together. So I want to give you a chance to answer that. And then we're going to get to the final two segments of the show. <laughs> 
You know, I am a social scientist studying science and technology. And I have noticed uh, over the years that science becomes much more open to this kind of knowledge that was previously put aside, dismissed as irrelevant, uh, etc. For the simple reason, you know, that science is discovering, after all, it's a, it's a cultural achievement. It's cultural creativity. And the world is larger than, you know, the Western part of it where science has arisen, as, as we know. Modern science came from, uh, from, from Europe. Then it became international, but that's the, that's the basis. And now we are discovering science has arrived in the middle of every society and it's shaping the way how, how we live. And therefore, it also has to absorb more. It has to become more open. And uh, this is so I'm, I'm more optimistic than, than you are in, in this respect. And I think that indigenous knowledge has a lot uh, to offer. But also in order to be able to take people along, you know, we have to enter a conversation, a dialogue. And this means you have to take people seriously and you have to talk with them as, as, as we talk now and not talk down to them and one knows better than the other. So I think this is the direction to go. But in this respect, I'm, I'm quite optimistic that we're on a good road. Absolutely, absolutely, and I and actually want to want to read the haiku in full, you know, because I, I jotted it down as part of my notes. So in in its three lines, I, I hope the listeners understand haiku's short, <laughs> so it's not going to be long. But human company, invisible algorithms, future needs wisdom. So that was your remix of the algor of the haiku that was provided through the AI. We could go on forever having this having this conversation, but I'm going to be cognizant of the time, and I want to go into the final two segments of the show. The first one being off the dome, which are just quick first thing that comes to your head, kind of answers, and then finally the drop where we give a recommendation of something for our listeners. So I have three off the dome questions. Are you ready? Yeah. Is that a thumbs up? Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. What is the most misunderstood quality of your work? So when you share your work with people that aren't like in this space, what's the first thing that like the most misunderstood thing that they might say to you about what you do? And I'm, I'm asking this question because like my parents don't understand at all what I do, right? Like no matter how many times I try to explain it to them, they're like, what? They might, they might think uh, that I'm going to give recipes how to do things better. And my book is very far away from that. My book is there to make you think on your own <laughs> and think further than I could think. So, you know, it's, um, uh, it's to go beyond what I put together on these 200-something uh, pages. So that's one. I'm, I'm not offering any recipe. And I'm, it's not a self-help book either. Absolutely. It is, it is a thought provoking book. I can books, plural. I can definitely um, co-sign on that one. Now, this is another question that I've asked list guests before, but given your relationship with time, I definitely had to get your perspective on this. Mm -hmm. So the question is, if you had a choice to go back in past to the past and see your ancestors or to go into the future and see your descendants, which would you choose to interact with? Definitely the future. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And then my final um, off-the-dome question is, if you can choose to move in the world as a hummingbird or as a tiger, which one would you choose? I would like to be a tiger. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, both beautiful. There's no wrong answer, right? It's just, I'm always, I've, I've asked that one before, and I'm always curious as to what people are, are going to say. Um, yeah, it's a great. They're all answers are good answers. So finally, we get to the drop, and and the drop, like I said, is an opportunity for both of us to share anything at all of note that they think our listeners should check out. It can be a book, a, a piece of music. I have a couple of drops. I'll go first and then you can go. My drops, I actually have two of them and they're both pieces of music. 
One of them is the, the most widely listened to or purchased or however people measure things like that piece of jazz music ever, which is Miles Davis kind of blue. So this is not necessarily something that might become new to listeners because it is, I think if people listen to jazz, they've at least heard at one point Miles Davis kind of blue, but it's a, a piece that keeps coming back to me. And most recently I've been listening to it a lot as I've been writing and it hasn't lost any of its its effect on me over decades of having listened to it at this point. So I just wanted to highlight that piece of music. And also there's an artist, he's a British musician, Bonobo, and he has a new record out um, called Fragments. Also have been listening to it as I was writing over the holidays and great piece of music. He has a great discography. So those are my two drops for this episode. Miles Davis, Kind of Blue and Bonobo Fragments. That's it. Music-wise, you know, today is Mozart's birthday. Hmm. And uh, I think you dip into Mozart's music, whether you like opera or chamber music or even the beginning of uh, symphonies or the end of a symphony. It's such a rich musical universe that still speaks to us at a level. It's, it's very difficult to understand, but, but it works even if you have not grown up in a classical uh, music world at, at all. So I would say, you know, take a bit of time and listen, listen also to Mozart. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a great drop. I, I love his music and classical music generally. You know, there's always something to be, to be heard. And it's, it's, I was having a very interesting and funny conversation about classical music over the holidays. So um, that resonated with me on many, on many levels. This has been a fantastic conversation. Like I honestly mean, like we could have talked about this stuff forever. I had pages and pages of notes. I'd never get to all of them, but I really sincerely want to thank you for coming on the show with me and sharing these ideas. It's, it's remarkable work and can't thank you enough. Well, thank you for a wonderful conversation that I deeply, deeply enjoyed. And I hope that um, some of the ideas that we exchange, because it was not just my ideas, it was also your ideas, and mixing them together and having them bounce off each, each other will also reach the audience that is your audience. Yeah, I, I think they're going to be very pleased with this episode, to say the least. <laughs> so we're in, we're in a good place. I feel really good about it. So thank you again for being on The Deep Dive. Thank you. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.